Well, um, we're continuing in our series through Genesis. And if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to our passage today, Genesis chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 16 to 33 together. So Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. May God bless the reading of his inspired and sufficient word. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice." so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40. Are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Amen. The word of the Lord. Sodom and Gomorrah, the week before Christmas. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Um, We've all probably heard the story at some point in our lives. Sin and wickedness is so rampant in the city that God brought down destructive fire and sulfur, judgment upon that city. The name of the city is so notorious that our culture uses it as a root word for a sex crime. And when we think about the story, we often struggle with the question of how God can be a loving God. How can he be merciful How can he be good in the midst of such devastating judgment to destroy an entire city like that? However, we are going to see today 
that God's love is not absent from this story. That Sodom and Gomorrah is not just a a story about justice, wrath, and judgment. Actually, we're gonna see God's mercy is present here. His goodness is present here. His grace is present here. We're gonna see that justice and mercy are not mutually exclusive, as if the two cannot coexist. In fact, they can. Justice and mercy must coexist for God to be both judge and savior. Let me say that again. Justice and mercy must both coexist for God to be both judge and savior. The second question that arises from the story is not only about, man, like why is God gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Why does he seem so wrathful and judgmental? Right? The second question is not simply about that, but it's actually about Abraham's prayer and the intercession that he makes for Sodom. It seems odd on so many levels. Why does he pray for this wicked city? It's not even like Sodom is the city of God. It's not even like Sodom is filled with God's people, right? And why does it feel like a negotiation where Abraham and God are bartering? Abraham's like 50, God's like, I'll give you 50. 45, I'll give you 45. 40, 40, you know, it's like there, it's almost like an auction. And you're like, what is going on? Abraham, what, like, I don't get it, right? This has been perplexing to me for so long on so many levels. Well, we're gonna try and answer these questions. What do we do with God's judgment? What do we do with God's justice, his righteousness, his mercy, and his love? And what is Abraham doing when he's pleading for the city of Sodom? So we have, uh, we have three points. First, we're gonna look at the righteousness of God provoked, right? the righteousness of God provoked. The second point we're gonna look at is the righteousness of God invoked. You guys see that? A little prefix action, right? So the righteousness of God provoked and then the righteousness of God invoked. And thirdly, the righteousness of God revealed, right? The righteousness of God revealed. Well, growing up, like most siblings, my younger brother and I, we spent a lot of time together. We, We shared a room and we had bunk beds. I had the lower bed and he had the, the top bed. We shared most of our meals together. We went to school together. Um, we played a lot together. And like most siblings, we fought a lot together. Well, being the older brother, uh, I won every fight. I won every fight except for the one where he chased me with a baseball bat. And uh, yeah, that one, we, we kind of like truce. I, I had a truce. He didn't hit me with it, but he almost did, right? Um, I won every fight. But at the end of each fight, even if I won, I always ended up losing, okay? Even if I just beat him down and and wrestled him into submission and I won that fight and he tapped out, I always ended up losing because my brother always had this like ace in the pocket. And at the end of every fight, he would let out a loud outcry towards a greater authority than me called mom and dad. Regardless of how hard I tried to cover his mouth, muzzle him, or threaten him, you better not call out to mom. He would look me right in the eye and scream, mom, dad, right? Whoever was present in the house, like a fire alarm going off, he would scream. And then I knew parental justice was on the way, right? Parental justice, judgment, The wrath of my father and mother was on its way. Well, in our passage today, we see that God has decided to punish Sodom and Gomorrah for its wickedness and its sin, 
right? We see in verse 20, actually, why though? Okay. Why is he doing this? Why is he going to destroy this city? Why is he going to enact judgments? And verse 20 reads, because the outcry, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. You see, God has decided to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, not merely because he's watching and observing all of their wickedness and all of their rebellion saying, you know what, that's enough. I'm gonna get in there and and I'm going to judge. I'm gonna bring wrath. It's not simply that, but it's rather because the victims of Sodom's evil, right? The ones who are experiencing Gomorrah's evil and wickedness firsthand, they have been crying out to God. They've been crying out for justice. And so just like my brother's cry for help provoked my parents to come and enact justice, the cries of Sodom's victims have risen up to God and they have provoked the righteousness of God. Do you see that? If you read Genesis 19, you'll see that Sodom was a city full of sexual perversion. But that's not all that they were guilty of. I mean, I think it's too bad that we think, man, Sodom and Gomorrah, it must be like, like Las Vegas times 10, like, like on steroids. And we just imagine that. We just imagine that that's the like, kind of association, the picture that we have. But that's not all they were guilty of. The prophet Ezekiel actually tells us more about this outcry, more about why God was so angry with Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's surprising. Ezekiel 16.49 reads this. This is what God says to his people. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Man, talk about a passage and a condemnation that that we didn't want to hear. You know, sodomy is one thing and say, okay, sodomy... Bring the justice, pride, excess of food, refusing to help the poor and the needy. That was Sodom's sin. We look at our lives, we look at our culture, we look at our city, we look at our country. Man, what do we deserve then? If that's what God brought down to Sodom and Gomorrah, what do we then deserve? Sodom's sin was far more than the sin of sexual perversion. It was a city full of injustice, a city that was full of pride without any concern for the poor and the needy. It was a city where its prosperous inhabitants only cared for themselves and they cared not for the marginalized. And so God's righteousness was invoked or provoked. And so God's justice was provoked. When we consider this truth, what then is the merciful thing for God to do? When people are crying out, Lord, help us, God, help us. When there are victims all over the city at the hands of evil, powerful, wicked men, what is the merciful thing for God to do? Is mercy just let bygones be bygones, leave them alone? Should he ignore these cries of injustice, right? What's the merciful thing for God to do? And the answer is obviously get in there and do something. 
for God to come down. Like he said, God's going to come down and investigate just to see whether the outcry and the activity is corresponding. That's mercy for God to come down and do something. Well, then what is the just thing to do? What's the just thing for God to do? Ignore the evils, allow the strong to continue to plunder the weak, to allow the rich to take advantage of the poor. You see, God's response was both an act of mercy and justice. In mercy, he heard the cries of the weak. In justice, he punished the wicked. Okay, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. In mercy, he did something about it, right? In justice, there was wrath, there was punishment. And church, this is so meaningful for us to remember today that our God is a God who hears the cries of the weak. Jim Boyce, preaching on this text, he says this, we, we may be unaware of injustice, but not one wrong has ever gone unnoticed by God. No one sin has ever failed to cry out to him, to ascend to him, to be, to be known by him. Okay. There's so many injustices so many evils that we are blind to, whether it's in our community or on the other side of the world, be it in Aleppo and Syria. We can be blind and ignorant of those things. Our God is not. He sees each sin. He hears each cry. And our God's promise is that he will not be silent. He will not be idle, right? Church, doesn't the sin of Sodom sound so much like our cities? so much like our world today. This week, more horrific stories and images from the war in Syria and the city of Aleppo flooded our newsfeed. Innocent men, women, and children are being bombed in the city and they are crying out for help that doesn't seem to be coming. I don't know if you saw any videos, but it was just devastating to see people just trying to cry out through social media. Stand with us, remember us. Help us do something for us. We are being bombed. We are dying day by day. So many in that city have lost hope. So many feel abandoned. Church, what do we do? We're literally on the other side of the world. What do we do? How do we respond? Right. There's, there's three practical things for us to do. Um, first is we all should pray. Second, for those who can do something, we should give. And thirdly, if there are some who have been called, we should go. We should go. Uh, we have a couple uh, in our church uh, today who, uh, I think this month, they are leaving to go to Israel and the Middle East, and they're ministering to uh, some of the refugees, in, uh, the Syrian refugees in the Middle East. I'm amazed by their calling. And uh, they're Doug and Esther Nobles. And so um, I know they're raising funds to go um, there. And, and if you want to support them, uh, you can contact them. Uh, Doug's one of the only Dutch guys that we have at our church. And so you cannot miss him. Um, we should pray. For those who can, we should give. For those who are called, we should go. But I want to say this. Any attempt that we might have to, to stand with Aleppo or to take on some cause and, and defend the weak and help uh, those who are marginalized in our community. Any of these endeavors, any of these prayers, any of these actions must begin with a faith that believes that our God hears each cry. 
a belief and a knowledge that he sees each act of evil and he promises to respond. He promises to do something about it and it's going to be a response full of mercy and full of justice. Mercy for the weak, justice for the oppressors. Not only has the righteousness of God been provoked by this outcry for justice, but the righteousness of God has also been invoked by Abraham in his prayer. Now, it's interesting that God doesn't tell Abraham that he's gonna destroy Sodom, right? In that exchange, God doesn't say, hey, Abraham, I'm gonna destroy Sodom. And Abraham is like, whoa, like, where did that come from? God, you went from like zero to 60, just like that. You just promised me that in a year, I'm going to have a son and that was awesome. And now you're gonna destroy a city. Like, where where did that come from, right? Um, So God doesn't, kind of prep Abraham for that. He doesn't tell Abraham he's going to destroy Sodom. In fact, in verse 17, it it seems like God isn't sure if he even wants Abraham to know that it's about to happen. He's like, man, should we we let Abraham know that we're going to do this, right? That we're going to visit Sodom because Abraham's about to be the father of a great nation and a blessing to all of the nations. And this just might be too much for Abraham to handle, right? But Abraham, knowing the righteousness and justice of God, Abraham, knowing the wickedness and the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah, he he understands what's going to take place. If God visits Sodom and Gomorrah, it is not going to work out well for Sodom and Gomorrah. So he pleads on behalf of Sodom. And though this seems like a conversation or a negotiation between Abraham and God, it's really something called intercessory prayer. It's actually intercessory prayer. Abraham was praying on behalf of Sodom. And this is actually the first instance of intercessory prayer in the entire Bible. And we can actually say that a lot because we're in Genesis. So in the series, we're like, this is the first ever, (laughs) right? Uh, And so... This is the first intercessory prayer we have in the Bible. And so just as a lawyer defends his client before a judge, Abraham is pleading on behalf of Sodom that she might be spared, that God might have mercy. I want to highlight just a couple of remarkable things about Abraham's prayer. First is this. Abraham's prayer was missional. It was missional. Uh, Abraham actually did have family in Sodom. Uh, His nephew, Lot, had settled in Sodom and was living uh, among the people there. But Abraham's prayer doesn't even mention Lot, right? He wasn't like, God, my nephew's there. Can, like, just don't destroy it because Lot needs to stay alive. I care for him. I love him. He's family. Uh, Can you just have mercy? It wasn't based on his family, right? It wasn't based on his own personal tribe, Abraham was praying for an entire city filled with unrighteous, wicked people. Nonetheless, his concern wasn't just for the welfare of his family and his friends. His concern was for the welfare of a city. When God said that all the nations that would be, would be blessed through him, God, Abraham heard that. Abraham heard that first in Genesis 12. God promised that to him. All the nations will be blessed through you. And then here again, In Genesis 18, God reminds Abraham, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. Abraham took that to heart. He took that to heart. He says, these guys then are part of all the nations, right? Sodom and Gomorrah need to be blessed. I need to intercede on their behalf. 
whether they're believers or not, whether they look like me or not, whether my family and friends are there or not, Abraham cared for Sodom and Gomorrah. He was missional. The second remarkable thing we see about Abraham's prayer is this. He was both humble and bold. Humble and bold. Humble because he remembers who he is. He has this great line when he opens up, when he opens up asking about like, hey, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare Sodom? Before he even says that, he says, I'm but ashes and dust. Who am I, God? I am no one to be having a face-to-face with you. I'm no one to be coming before you and, and bartering or negotiating or talking. You know, God, you said this. I should just say, okay, but I gotta ask. I'm ashes and dust. I'm humble. I'm really sorry, but I have to ask, right? If there's 50 righteous people in the city, will you spare it? Um, over and again, he says, let not the Lord be angry. You hear it. As I was reading and I was trying to draw it out, Abraham is like apologetic that he keeps coming back. How, you know, just 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Abraham's like, one more time. God, I'm sorry. Just, I have to, I have to. So he was humble, but he was bold. And he was bold because he keeps asking. He keeps praying. These are actually not just, this isn't just like a back and forth conversation. Uh, Theologians see this as six prayers. Six times Abraham goes before the Lord in prayer, interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, praying that God would spare the city all the way down to 10 righteous people. Abraham was both humble and bold. The third uh, last thing that we see in Abraham's prayer is that Abraham makes an appeal to God's righteousness. He appeals to God's righteousness. And this is, this is so significant and so different because he doesn't say just, Lord, can't you give Sodom a pass? They didn't mean it. Everyone makes mistakes. I'm sure if you just send me, uh, I, can, I can kind of like explain like what they're doing. is. Maybe they didn't know sodomy was bad. Maybe they didn't know like, you know, uh, greed and, and selfishness and not caring for others. Maybe they just didn't know the golden rule, God. Can, can we just give them a pass? He didn't say that. He didn't say, can you just let them off with a warning because you're a good and gracious God? No, Abraham knows who God is and his prayer is full of that knowledge. Look at verse 25. This is what Abraham says. Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? But Abraham says, God, you are a just God. You can't do this. Your character, right? Your character is not the kind of character to put to death the righteous with the wicked. God, that's not you. That's not you. You are a righteous, just God. See, because Abraham knows that God is the judge of all the earth and that Sodom deserves just judgments, he knows he has to work that line. He can't just say, God, be nice. God, be loving. No, he wants to follow God and invoke the justice and the righteousness of God. Because God, Abraham knows God is righteous, he won't put to death the wicked with the righteous with the wicked. The innocent shouldn't be punished with the guilty. Now, I want to park on this last aspect of Abraham's prayer. Derek Kidner, a commentator that I've been leaning on uh, through this entire Genesis series, he calls this Abraham's exploration 
of God. He's exploring. He's getting to know uh, the depths of God's righteousness, God's heart, and his mind through this prayer, through this conversation and experience of God. Abraham is feeling his way forward in faith to grasp the range of God's righteousness. If God is righteous, what does it mean for this? And this category, and these people, and these situations. He's asking God, and God is, is revealing. And this is what Abraham is learning about God through this entire exchange. That God is a God who's willing to spare the many for the sake of the few. God is a God, the God of the Bible, the God of our salvation is a God who's willing to spare the many for the sake of the few. That the righteousness of some can be conferred as a blessing to others. Okay? That the righteousness of some can be conferred as a blessing to others. Now, this is so different from the way that you and I think, because we are Western, individualistic Americans, right? Um, except for Doug, he's Dutch. And um, <laughs> uh, see, for us uh, Americans, we are taught that people should be judged on their individual merits, right? Individual merits. That if someone does well, you should get the reward, right? You should get the reward. If someone does poorly, you should be punished. That's why so many of us hate group projects, right? Group projects go because there's always one person who is just dragging it. They're dead weight, just not doing anything. But you, you like need to do the work. And so if you're like type A, like got to have a good score, whatever it might be, you do all the work, you do your work and their work and you get the A and then they get the A. And you're like, group projects stink. They are the work. Unless you are the dead weight and you get the A. Then you're like, I love group projects, right? right. But, right? But, but in our individual success, we're like, okay, if you do well, you should be rewarded. If you do poorly, you should be punished, right? And the Bible does affirm this in a sense. The Bible does tell us at the end, ultimately, each of us are accountable for our own faith, right? You can't say, well, my parents were really Christian, so that's going to get me into heaven. Like that, 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 that doesn't really work, right? We personally have to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the Bible does affirm that, but at the same time, we see there's a much greater emphasis on corporate responsibility and communal experience. There are blessings. There is righteousness that is transferred and unrighteousness that's transferred all throughout scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. It works both ways. You guys know the story of Noah, right? Noah, how many other people got to join him in that lifeboat ark? Seven other people, there were eight of them. So his wife, his three sons, and their wives. But it was on the account of Noah's righteousness. It was the fact that Noah found favor with God that his whole family was spared and saved in that ark, right? There's never any mention about the rest of that family and their righteousness, them walking with God, fearing God, worshiping God, finding favor of God. It was all Noah, right? His righteousness conferred a blessing to his entire family. We see in David, this is the flip side, King David. One of King David, the, the, the second greatest sin King David ever committed besides Bathsheba and then having one of his great mighty men killed was uh, out of pride, he counted his people. Right? He counted his people against the will of the Lord. And because of this sin, God punished Israel for, with three days of pestilence. Three days of pestilence, 70,000 men in Israel died. Why? Because David acted in sin as a prideful king. 
he counted his people against the will of the Lord. 70,000 people, 70,000 Israelites died because of David's disobedience. Do you see this corporate responsibility, right? You see this conferring of righteousness and even unrighteousness throughout scripture. And this is actually why God agrees to Abraham's request, right? Why? Not because Abraham is a great negotiator, not because, right? That's not the case, but because God was showing Abraham that he was willing to save the many for the sake of a few that 50 righteous people could save a city, that 40 righteous people could save a city, that 30 righteous people in Sodom could spare Sodom, that 20 and even 10. If there were 10 truly righteous people, God would spare Sodom. Why do you think Abraham stopped at 10? Did anyone figure that out? We're like, man, we worked it all. We negotiated God all the way down from 50. Why didn't Abraham just go all the way down to one? Did anyone think that? I thought that all the time. Tim Keller thought this too, a pastor out in New York. And uh, he asked this question, right? Do you think just Abraham lost his nerve? Like, you know, he just, he just got sorry for asking so much, right? He just lost his nerve. He felt too guilty for asking too much already. Or, you know, Abraham's like, you know, I, I kind of won the negotiation. We went from 50, 10, I'll settle at 10. We're good, right? But what would God have said if Abraham asked for one? God, for one righteous person, will you spare Sodom? And the answer, I believe, is that God would have said yes. For one righteous person, I will spare Sodom if it is the right one, if it's the right kind of righteous person. Church, did you know that there was actually a case in Israel's history when God said he would spare a city he would spare a nation for the sake of one. Israel was facing the threat of a Babylonian conquest. The northern kingdom, so uh, if you read kind of towards the second half of the Old Testament, the part that you, ne- you guys never read, um, uh, if, you, if you start reading it, you know, it's like a, a lot of exile, a lot of conquest, a lot of trouble, and then they start calling Israel um, the, the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. There's Israel and then Judah, and you're like really confused. Well, what happened was, the northern kingdom fell first, right? It fell to the uh, group called the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem was, was under attack. They were under attack. They were being sieged by the Babylonians. Fear has gripped the nation. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah, uh, he, he says this, prophet of Israel in chapter five, one says this, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Her is who? What? The city of Jerusalem. God is pretty much saying this. If you can find one righteous person in Jerusalem, I will spare you. Run to and fro. Search every nook and cranny in this city. Look for somebody who loves and does justice and truth, and I'll spare you from the Babylonians. If there's one truly righteous man in the city, Jerusalem would be saved. But that man was not to be found, and Israel fell, and her citizens were all taken captive as Babylonian slaves. The church, centuries later, that one man did arrive in Jerusalem. 
One man who did do justice all his life. One man who was full of grace and truth. One man who loved the poor and he cared for the weak. One man who upheld every jot and tittle of the law. One man who was completely righteous and that was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the one man who lived the righteous life in the city. He was the one who lived the life we should have lived. And on Calvary's cross died the death we all deserve. This is what Paul writes about the obedience, the work, and the righteousness of Christ in Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and he's talking about Adam when Adam disobeyed and fell from that garden, that one trespass led to condemnation for all of us. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Church, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that through the obedience of Jesus Christ, obedience that took him to the cross. You and I, you and I who in and of ourselves, we are not righteous. We're not perfect. We're not good. We're not justice living, truth bearing people. But through Jesus Christ, we can be made righteous. The gospel makes us what we are not. We can receive grace that we do not deserve. We have an identity that you and I do not deserve. You see, church, it's true. Sodom and Gomorrah were not spared. God enacted judgment upon those cities. And it's true. It's a powerful story about the judgment and wrath of God. But just as Sodom and Gomorrah were not spared, we don't deserve to be spared either. That's the truth. And that's the warning for all of us. But Sodom and Gomorrah is not just a story that leaves us in fear and judgment. It's not just a story that makes us afraid of of fire and sulfur, whatever that might be. It points us to the heart of God and the gospel. That though there weren't 10 righteous men to save the city of Sodom, God sent one righteous man to save you and I. God sent one righteous man to save the many, to redeem the nations. Do you believe that? And so this is the the message and the truth for us today. If you find yourself as a victim, someone who's been struggling, hurting, crying out to the Lord, the message of the gospel invites you to know and believe that God hears you. He hears your outcry. He knows your tears. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to give you peace, to be your hope, to be your redeemer. For those of us who might be in sin, for those of us who would look in the mirror and say, we are wicked, we are unrighteous, we are evildoers. What I did last night, I deserve damnation. The good news is this, though you rightly deserve it, Jesus Christ bore that on his body on the cross for you. And if you believe on him, there is forgiveness. You can approach the cross. You can approach the Father. You can approach this table knowing that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are redeemed. Would you believe in the Son today?
Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for this message and this truth today that you are a God who through the righteousness of one man save the wickedness of many. We thank you that you have spared us because you did not spare your son Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, I pray that as we continue in worship, as we move into this time of communion, Lord, that this would not be a time where we, where we cheapen grace, where we presume on your grace, but Lord, may this be a celebration and a cherishing that Jesus Christ would love us to the point of death, that Jesus Christ, with one act of perfect obedience to you on that cross, afforded to us all of his righteousness, all of his glory, all of his perfection. Make us a grateful people. And God, I wanna pray for anyone who who might be struggling to believe this gospel message. Would you help them right now? Would you help them believe? Not by their grit, not by their own intelligence, but by your grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. Would you give them the gift of faith to see Jesus as a loving, as a perfect, and as a personal Savior? We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.